Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate you tuning in today. It's been awesome to see the children back to uh, Wednesday night and to Sunday in childcare, and so we're excited about that. Don't forget to check email regularly for all the updates as far as uh, who's gathering where and when, and we're trying to, as much as possible, make that user-friendly by going to our homepage in the This Week at Grace section. So please avail yourself to those things, and if you ever have questions, go ahead and call the office or text one of us, and we would love to be a help. And uh, we're praying for you. We look forward to uh, just continuing together as we worship and fellowship and glorify our great God. And so let's begin with the word of prayer and take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. We'll continue there this evening. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to gather together, uh, albeit in a different way. Uh, we're thankful that we have, up until this point, enjoyed such success, success in the morning as we worship together. Um, it is great to see uh, plenty of faces in the building, outside the building, and we're thankful for all the space that you've given to us at Grace Church. Uh, we can accommodate all the social distancing protocols and more um, because of the provision of technology, the provision of outside and tents, the provision of our fellowship hall and our auditorium, and we're so thankful for those things. Continue to give us wisdom, continue to give us courage and faith as we uh, walk along in hand-in-hand uh, hand with what you'd have us to do. Thank you for giving us the Word of God above all these resources that uh, minister uh, great, great skill with great skill uh, to allow us to live uh, wisely and for the Spirit of God who has given us discernment and wisdom and uh, warmed our hearts to faith in Jesus Christ and illumines us still in the, um, in the understanding of the Word of God. And so we pray that as we work through another passage this evening that you would give us a good success in that regard. Help me to be clear. Help me to uh, speak exactly what the text would have me say. And uh, nothing more, nothing less. It's in Jesus' precious name. And... Uh, and it is with our thankful hearts for his work on the cross, for, for bearing, for forgiving us of our sins. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Luke chapter 9. We have approached a fundamental question here in our passage. We're going to be starting in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And the fundamental question is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? The whole feeding of the 5,000 plus narrative now culminates to that question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It is the very point of this miracle that we have discussed last week. It is the very point of the miracle to, to fully engage our hearts and our minds with that question. Who is Jesus? And so we'll see that here in Luke chapter 9. Verse 18, and it happened that while he was praying alone, that's Jesus, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered him, his apostles, his disciples, John the Baptist, and others said, Elijah. 
But others still said that one of the prophets of old has risen again. So that's the crowd report via the mouth of the disciples. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? So he's looking right at the apostles now, and he says, you know, who do you say that I am? Not who do they say, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until we see the kingdom of God, until they see the kingdom of God. So Luke has just finished walking his readers through uh, the transition ministry. Remember that at the very beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus calls his apostles together and he says, it's time for you to receive power and authority and, 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 and specific power and authority to proclaim the gospel message and authenticate that message through healing. And so Luke begins with that. And it's, and it's a critical juncture in the context here in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Then they report back all the success that, that the apostles enjoyed through this power, through the transition of this power and authority. And this success ends up amassing a great pr crowd of people to see Jesus. This isn't the first crowd. This won't be the last crowd. But nonetheless, it is a crowd. And it is because of all that the apostles, through the power and authority of Jesus, accomplished in their itinerant and <clears throat> transitory ministry. And now Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus women and children. He feeds them. And Luke, Luke repositions uh, the spotlight from the apostles. Remember last week we said really the, the feeding of the 5,000 had everything to do with the apostles. And, and really when Jesus says to them, you feed them. I think Jesus really meant you feed them. And yet they kind of scratched their heads and said, well, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough. We only have five loaves and two fish. Uh, desolate place. 5,000 plus people, how in the world are we going to do that? And so Jesus goes ahead and takes it upon himself to feed the 5,000. And so the spotlight initially is on the apostles, and now Luke, I believe, moves the spotlight from the apostles to now the crowd. And we're going to take instruction from that tonight. And Jesus asks the apostles, who does the crowd say that I am? And boom, there's the spotlight on the crowd. Who does, do the people, verse 20, excuse me, verse 18, who do the people, who does the crowd say that I am? And the question is framed within feeding of the 5,000. For instance, consider that back in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 7 and 8, John has the, uh, excuse me, John, Herod has the same question. 
that we as readers can infer, and that is, who is Jesus? And the question is, is really discovered through the answers that Herod has. Herod says, well, he could either be John the Baptist, but there's one problem. I've already cut, I've already cut John the Baptist's head, so who else could it be? It could be, uh, some say, Elijah, and some say prophets of old. And so here in verse 19, we see that very same follow-up. Who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus asks. And in verse 19, the apostles rehearse that very same answer, the very same answer that Herod had prior to the feeding of the 5,000. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets of old. And so the, the, the spotlight is on the crowds and what their opinion of Jesus is. And, and there's a reason for that. Because Luke essentially records that, that the crowds the mass of people get the answer wrong. And it's incredible when we consider what Jesus had just done. And so we'll see, see that in a second. But they get the answer wrong. But Luke also records for us the right answer. In verse 20, when, when Jesus asks Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And you see, what we're going to see tonight is that faith really is the prerequisite to getting this answer correct. You can't get this answer right without a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith that is given to us, as we're told. Without faith, it is impossible to see Jesus for who he really is. Without faith, the answer to this question will always fall short. And so faith is the prerequisite to seeing Jesus for who he is. This helps me understand why so many people know about Jesus, but they don't trust in Jesus. So many people can write about Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. So many people can talk about Jesus, but they don't live for Jesus. So many people claim Jesus in their lives, but they don't claim him as Lord. You know, recently I saw a clip of a family uh, online who was doing the chair fall. You know what I'm talking about? So this is, this is a typical thing to build trust. It's kind of teamwork related. Sometimes I've even seen evangelists do it where if you want to have faith, you're going to lean back and this is faith. It's falling into other people's arms and, and you're blindfolded and you don't know if they're going to catch you or not. You have to trust them. And so this family was doing the chair fall in their living room, and, and the youngest boy was blindfolded. He was up on a chair, and he was standing there, and, and the family was behind him, and they all had their arms. It was a decent-sized family, uh, and so there were about five or six of them. They all had their arms locked, and they were ready to receive this boy. And, and you could see, I mean, through the blindfold that, you know, he was kind of nervous. He was kind of excited. He really wanted to show that he was willing to trust his family. And, and so the boy started smiling, and he was ready to demonstrate that he was willing to jump off the chair and trust his family. The only problem is he began to, to crouch down, which is not something you do if you're going to lean backwards. And then before anyone knows it, he crouches down, and he lurches forward. And, and, the, and the frame kind of freezes with the, the, the middle brother who's closest to him on, on the one side, kind of having this bewildered, astonished look in his face and trying to reach towards his brother to stop him from going that way. Of course, he's too late, 
and I haven't seen the end of the clip. The clip just kind of stops. It's kind of humorous, but it's also kind of sad, right? All this energy and all this, this, this trust that this boy had, he ended up going the wrong direction. And so his faith, his trust in his family was, was ill-found because he wasn't real willing to go the right way. And of course, this illustrates, I think, very, very graphically the, the reality of the crowd. The crowd that just saw Jesus feed them and kept feeding them, feeding them so much that, that Jesus... Uh, that Jesus' provision demonstrated there, there was abundance, that there was more left over than, than they needed. The crowd heard about Jesus. They saw what Jesus could do, but when it was time for them to trust Jesus, this is Luke's point, they went the wrong way. You see, there's people like that in our midst, that they, they, they hung around Jesus. Right? They, they spoke about Jesus with other people. They, they, they hang out with people who, who believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus. They may go to church here. And yet when, when really their life is measured, not by any one human standard, but by Jesus himself's standard, they're going the wrong way. That's Luke's point. The question for us is simple tonight. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Luke doesn't ask us in theory, who is Jesus Christ? What do you know about him? What are, what are these, what are these uh, unconcrete, abstract realities about Jesus Christ that you can articulate? He doesn't ask you, who is Jesus Christ to your parents? Or who is Jesus Christ to your spouse? He asks tonight, who is Jesus Christ to you? Just as blatantly as Christ looks at the apostles and dialogues with Peter, who do you say that I am? It's not mere words. It's not showing up in church. It's not hanging out with those who know Jesus. It's not just reading your Bible but it is incredibly personal. Who do you say that I am? And it's a good thing that this question is personal because, my friends, personal faith is the basis by which we see God. It is the basis by which we see God, and I believe that's going to be Luke's, uh, Luke's thread throughout tonight, is that personal faith is the basis by which we see God, and that's personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's not who do we know. It's not who are we associated with. It's not if we're checking off the boxes that people can see like church attendance and good things and prayer meetings and yada, 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 and on it goes. People can do all those things and more and lack a personal faith in Jesus Christ that actually changes them the way Jesus wants them to change. And that's the issue tonight is the crowds hung around and, and, and they heard and they saw, but they went the wrong way. And so our text will point out two distinct ways in which personal faith is required to see God. First of all, personal faith is required to know who Jesus Christ is. We're going to see that here in verses 18 and following. Personal faith is required to know who Jesus Christ is. 
It's a gift. It's a beautiful gift, a gift that we can't take for granted. That personal faith requires a whole reorientation of life. So personal faith is required to know God, and when we have this personal faith, it is demonstrated, it is articulated through the reality that our whole life is upside down in Jesus Christ, a whole reorientation of our life. And so personal faith is required to know who Jesus is. So the context is the crowd of 5,000 plus people who had witnessed and benefited from amazing miracle of of feeding of the 5,000. It was in a desolate place. It was against all physical possibility with only five loaves and two fish. Jesus feeds everyone and Jesus feeds everyone to satisfaction with leftovers. And Luke here in verse 18 begins to record for us that Jesus, after all this, is praying alone. And he interrupts his prayer and asks the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Does that ever happen to you, by the way? You know, when you're praying in a thought about the day and your response in a particular situation or a need that somebody else has just kind of interrupts your prayer time. And, and after you're done praying, you have to do something about that. Maybe you begin to pray about helping with that need, or you begin praying for that person, and then you call them up and you say, hey, you know what, I, the Lord brought you to mind, and, and, and I'm, I just, I've been praying for you. How are you? Well, and that, that's the case here, that Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, kind of stops and, 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 and is moved through communion with the Father. And the question Jesus had about the crowds is whether or not they had personal faith in him. Of course, Jesus knew the answer to that. And so it's recorded for our benefit that Luke, Luke even tells us prior to this in, in verses 7 and 8 through Herod that, that we understood uh, that Jesus, that, that many thought uh, differently about Jesus, whether he was John the Baptist or a prophet of old. So why the repetition? Why the repetition again here after the feeding of the 5,000? It's because Jesus, uh, Luke, through the Holy Spirit, wants us to get the point. The point isn't, wow, isn't Jesus amazing? He has fed the 5,000 yet again. Wow, he has done it yet again. He has demonstrated his power yet again. Good for Jesus. The point is, what are people going to do when Jesus reveals himself to you? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You must do something. So Luke is making the point that the crowds miss it. Miss it. The answer before the feeding of the 5,000 was, according to Herod, John the Baptist, right? Who does does, uh, people say that Jesus is? He's John the Baptist. He's a prophet of old. He's Elijah. And then think about it. There are 5,000 people plus that gather and see Jesus firsthand provide in a desolate place with only five loaves and two fish. And what do the people do? What's the answer? Who is Jesus? The answer has not changed in verse 18, verse 19. The answer has not changed. The miracle did nothing, nothing to persuade them of who Jesus really was. That's the problem that Luke is getting us to understand through this repetition. 
that they missed it. The crowd utterly missed it. They missed the point. Jesus, in fact, in John, records that the whole point of this miracle is to show them, to articulate to them, that he is the bread of life. The only one that can satisfy, not just physically, but spiritually. Spiritually. He is the bread of life. And so the disciples report to Jesus that the that some of the crowds say this, Elijah, some of the crowds say this, John the Baptist, and some of the crowds say this, he's a prophet of old. And it demonstrates just how critical the question is. In fact, folks, I want you to understand that Luke, Luke skips a whole bunch of material between Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 17, and Luke chapter 9, verse 18. He skips eight, at least eight significant events that I can count. And remember what Luke's whole proposition statement is. Turn, hold your finger here. Turn to Luke chapter 1 for a second. In Luke chapter 1, his whole proposition statement is, is what? It's, it seems fitting for me. This is verse 3. Luke is writing to Theophilus, and he says, It seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, give an orderly account most excellent Theophilus. In other words, Luke is, is trying to arrange things in a consecutive chronological order that is, is really going to be helpful for the reader. And yet, Luke's overriding passion in that regard has to be a glaring thing here. Why? Because in between verses 7 and 18, 17, excuse me, and 18, there's a little space in your Bible but there is a lot of text from the other Gospels there. And some, some uh, maybe higher criticism, some people who want to write about the Bible, but yet they want to be critical about the Bible, they don't want to view the Bible through the lens of faith, are going to say, aha, look it, he didn't get it, or, or, or he borrowed and he missed it, or, or, or this just shows that the Gospels are just kind of, they're not as unified as these Christians say that they are. But my friends, this is actually done on purpose, I believe. Because he skips uh, these, these uh, critical, these, these, these major events in Jesus' life so that he can keep the flow going. Who do the people say that I am between what just happened with the feeding of the 5,000 and their answer? Here are the things that he skips. He skips the departure from Bethsaida in the crowds, and that's in Matthew 14. And, and as, the, as the disciples are departing to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, that's when the great storm comes up and Jesus comes to them walking on water. I mean, Luke skips that. He skips that. He, he skips the healing of those who touch his garment once they get to the other side and they get to Gennesaret in Matthew chapter 14. He skips the, the defense of his disciples and the condemnation of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. He skips the healing of the Canaanite woman's daughter in Matthew chapter 15. He skips the healing of the deaf and the dumb and the feeding of the 4,000. That's, that's no little event. All in Matthew chapter 15. He skips the confrontation of the, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And lastly, in Matthew chapter 15 and in Matthew chapter 16, he skips the healing of the blind man in Bethsaida again. 
So Luke skips all these details so they can keep the question before us, who is Jesus? They should know. They should have seen the power and the authority by which Jesus demonstrates who he is, and yet the answer is glaringly short. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say a prophet of old. Surely, if there's anything that would sway the minds of the hearts in the hearts of the crowds, it is Jesus demonstrating that he can, through his very words, provide physical life, which, which demonstrates that he has the power to provide spiritual life. So it's an important question to answer. And Luke wants us to hone in on that. And he wants us to hone in on not just answering the question, but answering the question right who do you say that I am, Jesus says. And so the point is that Jesus, first of all, is the anointed Messiah. So, you know, we're, we're looking at from a, an outline standpoint that per, personal faith is required to know who Jesus is. Well, how does, how does uh, uh, Luke describe who Jesus is? And the first critical component of understanding who Jesus is, is that Jesus is the anointed Messiah. Peter says that in verse 20, and Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. You are the Christ, the anointed, the Greek, Christos, the Christ of God. In Hebrew, that word is Messiah. 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 And so by the time of Jesus, the Messiah was seen as a man that would be greater than the previous prophets. He was seen as a man who would destroy Israel's enemies. He was seen as a man that would deliver Jerusalem from the Gentiles. He would, see, he would be seen as a man that would regather the dispersion of the, of the Jews back to Jerusalem. He would be seen as a man that would rule with justice and with righteousness. He would be seen as a conquering man, a delivering man, a strong man, a militant man, a victorious man. And this is what the Jews had in mind when they looked forward to the coming Messiah. Quite frankly, folks, this is what the, the apostles had in mind, thinking through the anointed, the Messiah, that Jesus would reign and it, he would physically deliver from oppression. And he would, he would be the ultimate uh, uh, harbinger, he would be the ultimate bringer of, of, of social justice to the world. And the Jews would no longer be oppressed by the Roman government. But you know what's interesting? Is that as we move along into the, the text, verse 21 says, Jesus says, okay, you get that I'm the Christ, the anointed of God, the Messiah. And he warned them not to instruct anyone to tell them, to tell anyone else. Uh, and, and we'll look at that here. But in verse 22, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. This was not the Messiah. Even the apostles thought was to come. Every time that Jesus self-discloses his messianic portrayal of himself, he discloses the Messiah that would suffer. Not the Messiah, at least not yet, that would reign and rule. The Messiah that would suffer. And this is, this is important because Jesus is, is the Messiah in verse, 19, uh, excuse me, in verse 20 that, that Peter articulates, saying the Christ of God. But what kind of a Messiah is Jesus? It's not the Messiah that the Jews thought. Jesus is the suffering Messiah. 
the rejected Messiah. And it's actually quite interesting. It's ironic, folks, that, that Jesus came to deliver. And the very reason why Jesus came to deliver is the very reason why Jesus had to suffer is the very reason that, that Jesus was rejected. Jesus was re rejected because he was a suffering servant and, and he had to suffer because he was rejected. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing in God's plan that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders uh, were the catalyst and the cause for his rejection and, and, and his rejection was the catalyst and cause for them to reject him. So they missed it. They missed Jesus. And why is it important? Why is it so critical for, for Luke to, to, to begin to, to articulate that it's not just knowing about Jesus that's important, Peter, that's good. But it's, it's understanding, quite frankly, the kind of Jesus that has come. This kind of Jesus is totally outside the box to which the Jew had wanted the Messiah. They wanted a physical, ruling, victorious, strong one. And Jesus says, I am the suffering one. Of course, Isaiah 53 comes to mind, the suffering one that will be rejected. And so critical to understand. Because Jesus suffered for our sins. That's the kind of deliverance that Jesus came to give us. It wasn't first and foremost primarily a physical deliverance. That stuff's easy for Jesus. Right? He says the word and it's done. But Jesus came to fix a greater, more sinister problem, and that is sin. That is sin. And so the biggest foe for the Jew was occupation. The biggest foe was political freedom. The, big, the biggest want was political freedom and social justice. But Jesus states that the greatest need that anyone has is not freedom from politics. It's not freedom from oppression. It's not social equality. It is the removal of our sin. And only a suffering Savior can do that. And that, my friends, has to be the foundation of who we understand Jesus to be, that he suffered for you. And that suffering ought, it ought, it demands that we change how we live and who we are in Jesus Christ. Because we don't deserve to have a suffering Savior come and save us. We deserve to be annihilated by his very justice, by those same eyes, those flames of fire that one day will judge every single creature, whether right or wrong, whether in Jesus or not. And my friends, you and I, when we get a hold of the fact that our biggest problem isn't money, our biggest problem isn't social standing, our biggest problem isn't what we're going to do today or how we're going to entertain or what other people think of us, our biggest problem foundationally and fundamentally is that you have wronged the holy and righteous God and there is only one thing to do about that. That is to embrace with all that you can the suffering Savior who saves from our sins. 
who saves from our sin. And that kind of embrace, that kind of crawling to the suffering Savior demands that our life is different, that our life will be changed, that we are not going to be like the crowds that see Jesus, that know about Jesus, that can articulate what Jesus has done, and yet our life is exactly the same today as it was yesterday. It's not, it cannot be the same answer that Herod says, that he is John the Baptist, or that he is the prophet of old, or that he is the prophet Elijah. It cannot be the same yesterday that it is today in our mouth and in our heart. It has to be different. It has to change us and continue to change us. And my friends, I plead with you that if you only know of Jesus, you know a lot about Jesus, you hang out with those who know a lot about Jesus, but all you do day in and day out is, has the, is have the same life, the same lifestyle that you had before you met Jesus. Can I tell you that you have not met the Messiah who suffered for your sins yet? That, my friend, that is what changes your life. That is what changes your life. And so I'm sorry to get so loud and worked up in a very empty room. And I, beautiful thing is you can adjust the volume on your TV or just turn it off, I suppose. But my friends, the suffering Savior changes your life. And he was rejected. One day he will be the conquering king, but he was rejected here in verse 22. He was rejected. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they didn't want to reorient, reorient their thinking about the Messiah. Neither did the crowds, for that matter. Their life continued on after meeting Jesus the exact same way. But this is exactly what faith does, my friends. Faith, when you come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you have a personal relationship with the Savior, your life dramatically and inevitably and consistently changes. It's not perfect. There's no magic pill. It doesn't mean that you're not going to fall, and sometimes you're not going to fall hard, but a person who walks with personal faith in Jesus Christ is going to be a person who, at the end of the day, sees the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, and they want to reorient their entire life around him and around what he says. And they want to do what he wants us to do. And so personal faith requires a whole reorientation of your life. Jesus uses vivid imagery here to describe that kind of orientation. We know these verses, but let's just look at the imagery. In verse 23, he says to them all. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I can't tell if this is all the disciples, all the apostles. It certainly seems in the context that he, he, he hears the report from the crowd, right, by the apostles. He hears the confession of the apostles led by the apostle Peter. And then, and then he turns to all, and he's, he's, he's overwhelmed with this reality that, that, that the crowd has not, got, not yet gotten it. He knows that. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He knows their hearts better than they do. And so I can see him proclaiming to all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. My friends, what vivid imagery that personal faith requires a whole reorientation of our life. The picture, this imagery, 
is described in three vivid, vivid verbs. Vivid verbs. Three of them. First of all, deny himself. Secondly, take up, right? See it there? His cross. And now in a pair of, thirdly, follow me. In those first two verbs, deny himself, take up his cross, those are, those are verbs of, of, of past, of aorist tense, of completion, of something that has, that, that, that has happened and is done. And, and essentially that third verb, that imperative, is, a, is an active, it's a present active imperative, which all that that means is that we need to continue to keep on doing it. And so the result is, if I have made the decision to deny myself, if I have made the decision, past, to bear my cross, the ongoing result is that I'm going to follow Jesus. And it's not something that I can just simply decide to do. It's actually an imperative. It's actually something commanded for me to do. And so someone who has personal faith in Jesus Christ is going to have a complete reorientation of following Jesus, not following self or somebody else, but following Jesus and Jesus alone. And he gives us these incredible pictures. Think about this. He says, deny myself. He's going to deny himself. And he's going to take up his cross. Wasn't that true? That I can point to decisions in my life that I have been reading my Bible and I have been studying it with others and I, I come to a decision eventually in my life where I'm going to stop doing such and such and I'm going to start doing such and such and I'm going to stop living for myself and I'm going to start living for Jesus Christ. And these are decisions that are radical in terms of self-denial. These are decisions, my friends, that quite frankly are rebellious against the carefree attitude of self-indulgence. This is what taking up my cross is. This is what taking up my cross is. This is self-denial. These are decisions based on the word of God and as I study it with others and, and they help me to follow what Jesus wants me to do today. And to illustrate exactly the kind of self-denial and cross-bearing that Jesus was talking about, this figure, take up your cross, is incredibly vivid. Think about this. The apostles, the disciples, they, they do not understand. It, 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 it almost, they don't understand until after the fact that Jesus is going to go to the cross. They have no concept here that Jesus literally means that he is going to go to the cross one day. Okay. What he is doing is he is borrowing on common imagery of the day. And that imagery, quite frankly, folks, is, a, is, is criminal. It's criminal imagery. If you are a Roman citizen or being punished through the Roman penal system, you, and, and it was a severe enough uh, crime, you would have to take up your cross before you were put up onto the cross. And that taking up of the cross was a very vivid public affair. And it visualized a person's humility before the state, the person, a person's absolute submission this was a criminal that rebelled against the state. And now the state has essentially borne the cross of submission onto them. They are carrying it to a place where they will go and they will be put up on it. It is the absolute, probably the most graphic public imagery that Jesus could borrow on. And it's a criminal one. Where there's someone who's just absolutely... Uh, uh, rebelling to the point of death 
by the state. And before death by the state, they are made to submit and carry that cross. My friends, that's, that's a powerful imagery. You know, and that's, that's what Paul leans on in Galatians chapter 2 when he says, I am crucified with Christ. I am being crucified with Christ. He's saying that his life is independent of Jesus is at an end. His life that was once independent from Jesus is now completely dependent on him. That he is in complete and utter submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. You have to deny yourself. Verse 23. You have to take up your cross. You have to follow me. There could it be more vivid imagery than that. Than that kind of submission. Than that kind of submission. So Jesus describes this reorientation now in three ways. And you see that there in verses 24, verses 25, and verses 26. Each of them grammatically, they help, the translators helpfully uh, put this there, uh, that is in the, in the Greek, for whoever wishes, for, verse 25, what is a man? For whoever is ashamed of me. And so Jesus is really going to start articulating or describing exactly what he means by this imagery of someone denying themselves and taking up this cross and following him. And so we see three measures by which we are, to, we are to be submitted to Jesus Christ. And so if these three measures are in your life, you can, you can confidently say that you are submitting your life to Jesus Christ. But there are some underneath the sound of my voice tonight that claim a life of Jesus Christ, claim to be following Jesus Christ. But yet, as we go through these three measures, they have not taken up the cross of Jesus. They have not completely bought into the reality that they need to self-deny themselves and follow him. And so what's the first measure of being submitted? What's the first articulation of this image? And that is, in a word, control. Verse 24. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. What does Jesus mean when he says whoever wishes to save his life and whoever saves his life will lose it? So in what sense is saving your life wrong and losing your life good. And so remember, these three verses, verse 24, verse 25, and verse 26, they all grammatically are going to be explaining this picture of Jesus saying, you must take up your own cross. And so Jesus is explaining the, the very picture of self-denial and cross-bearing. The matter of saving one's life is a matter of control. We could say it this way, whoever keeps control of his own life will lose it. But the one who relinquishes control, the one who will submit, the one who will carry the cross, is the one who will save it. The question is, who has control of your life? You see that? You see, that's the, that's the, that's the description from self-denial and cross-bearing. If, if, you're, if you're willing to uh, save your life, you're going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. That is the very picture of cross-bearing. Are you willing to, to lose your life? Are you willing to give control of your life? It's not let go and let God. What it is, who is control of your life? It's, 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 it's quite frankly the very opposite, opposite of the antithesis of let go and let God. It's, it's let Jesus have control of your life all the time. There's no letting go. It's, it's Jesus and his cross and his example. And so it's the matter of saving one's life in terms of the matter of control. Who has control of your life? People who follow Jesus have Jesus 
in control of their life. There's another way to say that. Verse 23, verse 24, excuse me. People who follow Jesus have Jesus in control of their life. In verse 25, not only do we have the word control, but we have the word value. The word value. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The next question is, what kind of profit is there for the one who has everything the world can offer and yet forfeits himself in the process? My, my friend, Jesus wants us to understand that Jesus' way stands in direct contrast to the offerings of this world. You have to understand that. You have to be willing to reconcile those those two realities, Jesus' way and the world, what Jesus wants and what the world wants us to have. Jesus says self-denial. The world says self-indulgence. Jesus says take up your cross and submit to me. The world says my life is mine. Complete antithesis. Complete contrast. The question is what do you value more? Remember, it's the word value. What do you value more? The word uh, what do you value more? Do you value uh, stuff for your own soul, uh, for your own life, or do you value your own soul? That's really quite, really, the, the reality. People who follow Jesus value their own soul and the souls of others. And here's the third, the third description, verse 26. It's the word authority. For whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. When he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus gets to the issue of authority. When he speaks of being ashamed of, of Jesus, of himself and his words, the implication is there's somebody else that's greater, that's more important, that you, you care to please more than Jesus Christ. So it becomes an issue of authority. Who really is authority in your life? And when you people who follow Jesus have Jesus as the authority in their life. There's nobody else that trumps Jesus Christ. Three measures of whether or not you are submitted to Jesus is control, value, and authority. And personal, personal faith requires a whole reorientation of your life. So who has control of your life? You do. Because that's not cross-bearing. Right? You need to go to verse 24 and understand that. Who has, con who has uh, authority over your life? Do you do to somebody else? That's not cross-bearing. You need to go to verse 26 and figure that out. What do you value in your life? Do you value the, the physical indulgences, the, the cares of this world, the concerns? Or do you value your own soul and souls of others, quite frankly. Because if you value stuff and prestige and leisure and laziness more than you value your own soul and the souls, quite frankly, of others, you need to go to verse 25 and understand that you're not cross-bearing. You're not cross-bearing. And so personal faith requires a whole reorientation of your life. It requires a complete and utter submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. It requires one to cross-bear. That's what that means. That's what that means. And so in conclusion, we're going to explain verse 27 because it is, it is a critical part, what Luke is trying to say here. But it's, 
quite frankly, it's, it's so clear that uh, these are one of those clear verses in Scripture that people disagree about because of, of systems and, and, and other, other, uh, uh, other uh, articulations outside of the text. And so tonight, uh, it is my first and foremost uh, allegiance to you as, as Grace Church and, and all of our pastors to simply explain what the text says to say what, what the text says, not to see what I can say about the text. And there's a big difference there. And so I'm going to keep to what the text says tonight. And, and quite frankly, there's no better way to do that. There's no other way to do that than to understand what the text says within the context. And so we're going to look at the, the context. And let's read verse 27. It says, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And there's all kinds of ways men explain this. And there's a few good ones, but I think, I think the, the clearest one is really what is defined by the context. And so the first thing we have to do is understand the terms. And so there's a critical term for us to understand here and how it relates to this question of personal faith and whether or not you have, you're demonstrating personal faith and demonstrating personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that actually reorients your entire life. And that first term, that critical term, is the word kingdom. They will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So what does the kingdom of God here refer to? And it's, It really is a technical term. It's a future term uh, in, in terms of uh, kingdom, eschatological kingdom. That is, that is the things of the future. And it's, it's even future from our perspective today, quite frankly. He already mentioned that the king and his kingdom will be rejected in verse 22. The Messiah, the king, these are all wrapped up into, into the, the same idea, ultimately. And the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. So the king and the kingdom was rejected by the elders. And it's, I already mentioned it's completely ironic that it was rejected because they rejected him for what, they were, what he was providing for them. And, and the very reason why... They rejected him as because he was coming as a suffering servant and, and not, as, not as the king of kings in their mind. And, and, yet, and yet, because they rejected him, he is the suffering servant. It's incredible how God does that. It's providential. And so the kingdom is a literal future, future reign of the king, the reign of King Jesus. And the key is that it is future, even from our perspective. So... What does Jesus mean when he says there are some standing here who will not taste death? We see that in the, in the verse, until they see the kingdom of God. Who are the ones standing around Jesus? Well, we understand that there may be the crowds, and I think at this point he's probably referring specifically to the apostles. And so we know the apostles, namely the apostles, are there that he's, that he's talking to. Some of them will not taste death until, he says, until they see the kingdom. So that doesn't mean that they wouldn't die. That's pretty critical. Uh, so, so ultimately, this kingdom hasn't arrived, and and it, it means that uh, they they wouldn't necessarily die; they just wouldn't die until they until something happens, and this something is seeing the kingdom. And so, the question is, who saw the kingdom of God, and what does it look like? Right? We all want to know that. That's really the answer that that we have to understand from this verse. But I say truthfully, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see see the kingdom of God. So, what is what is what, who saw what? That's really what we want to know. So I could say, come back next week and we'll talk about it. But we can't end there. That's a terrible way to end a, a sermon. And so we will talk about it next week in more detail. But verse 28 really tells us 
who that is. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter, John, and James, and went up to the mountain, prayed, and while he was praying, the appearance of his faith became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. So my friends, there is the who. Peter, John, and James. And what did they see? They saw the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. They saw and heard that Jesus is the king. If we continued reading on, we would not only see that Jesus' appearance is transfigured, but the voice of heaven, God himself, says, This is my son. He is the king. He is the king. So, that's verse 27, I believe, in this context. Let me just end by saying, what will the crowds do with this king? Because, my friends, you will either see the king, and he will say, well done, or you will see the king, and he will say, depart, I never knew you. And so what do the crowds do with Jesus? My friends, Jesus is telling us that they're on the side that will hear the part. You may have hung out with the apostles. You may have witnessed the incredible miracles that I have performed. You may have said my name. You have may even may, maybe have even said my name to others. But I never knew you. But I never knew you. It's not enough to know about Jesus. It's not enough to be around believers. It's not enough to come to Grace Church. It's not enough to, to have fellowship and, and to have people speak well of you here. My friends, it is only enough for Jesus, King Jesus, to say, yes, you are my subject. Yes, you have submitted and bore my cross. Changed your life. I believed in me in such a way that your whole life has been reoriented to living for me. Has knowing Jesus Christ, has your personal faith changed your life in such a way that you today are more prepared to see God than yesterday? And not that you're prepared to see God like, I can't wait till Jesus comes. No, that God looks at your life today and sees Jesus Christ more, sees Jesus Christ's cross being born into your life, your self-denial and your love growing. Is he changing your life, Christian? Or is that just a name? And you just go out and do the things that you want to do. You want to have control of your life. You value things other than Jesus Christ. And it's quite clear that Jesus is not the final authority. It sends, my friends, this warning tonight to the crowd. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Eternity will not stand for, I was there when I, when I saw Jesus, when, when people saw Jesus, when, when I, I was there talking about Jesus. I was there fellowshipping with others who knew Jesus. I was there at Grace Church of Menor at another church and heard about Jesus and even spoke about... That's not what eternity will last for. Eternity will last, my friends, 
when you know Jesus as king of your life, a whole reorientation of your life. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that the result could not be more clear that those with a personal faith in Jesus Christ will see the king. That's verse 27. And we can take hope that one day our faith will bring us to this ultimate sight, just like maybe some of the apostles had the opportunity to see. And we too will see the king of kings in all his glory. But there are some, there are some who do not relinquish control, who do not relinquish uh, the value set that the world has, who do not relinquish all authority to you. And there ought to be no assurance in their heart. Not because of Pastor Steve or Grace Church of Menor, but because your very own words say, who you say that I am. That question is fundamental. But the answer to that question is more than just a mere articulation of words. As you point out to us, it completely ought to change our life when we approach you, the suffering Messiah, who died to take away my sin. Help us, we pray, to take stock tonight of who we say that you are. In Jesus' name. Good night.